the word of our Lord from the Gospel of John. Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go you know, and the way you know. So Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let us pray. Lord, make us to have perpetual love and reverence for Your holy name. You never fail to help and to order those whom You have set upon the sure foundation of Your loving kindness. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with You and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Much like Mother's Day, Father's Day is sometimes a a tough subject for people. It makes it difficult uh, as a pastor to figure out, well, what is it that we say on Father's Day? Do I just preach a sermon on how to be a better dad? Well, what about the ladies in our congregation? Some of you ladies might think, please do. That will give me ammo for my husband when he fails. (laughs) Um, Some of us grew up with wonderful fathers. Some of us grew up with terrible fathers. Some of us, uh, like my friend Robert, who's a pastor in Mississippi, grew up with no father. His father committed suicide when Robert was young. I remember visiting um, visiting a, a church with him on Father's Day. And when the sermon came, Robert got up and he walked out of the service. Um, not in protest or anything like that. He was young. We were probably maybe 12 at the time. And he just quietly got up and left and his mom went and followed him. And um, I remember that the, the image that that has ingrained into my mind of the pain that some uh, endure on a, uh, on a day where we celebrate something so that ought to be so beautiful and so holy. Father's Day is difficult for some. But we do ourselves no service to neglect the good in life because of the bad. I tell the the youth all the time, or what used to be the youth all the time, I will not forfeit what I know because of what I don't know. I may not know trigonometry, but I do know that 2 plus 2 is 4, always has been for and always will be for, regardless of what hypothetical universe we live in, that I know. And so with a subject that does bring up 
many painful reminders for some, we do ourselves no service to remember the good things that we can learn about fatherhood and the good things that we can learn specifically about our Father in heaven and how He has formed us, how He has fashioned us, and how He has created the world around us to reflect Him and to point our eyes to Him, but not just to direct ourselves to Him, but better understanding the world because of Him. We've talked for the last few weeks about the fact that God has brought us into His family. You could say we have been brought into the divine family. In fact, this morning when I was checking in on Facebook, letting my friends know that I'm worshiping with you guys here at Faith Methodist Church, if you haven't done so, I invite you to do so, um, I said I'm looking forward to worshiping with the divine family. The family of God. We've been adopted into that family. God has has burst open the doors of His household and He has opened His arms to us and He has called for us, come on in. Come. If you're hungry, come and find food. If you're thirsty, come and find drink. If you're sad, come and find a shoulder to lean upon. If you are broken, come and find mending. And so we are blessed to be brought into the divine family. And Jesus here is bringing to the minds of His disciples on this night where He's preparing them for His betrayal and His death. He is bringing to their minds this idea of fatherhood. This idea of the fatherhood of God. In fact, he uses language that would be associated with a marriage proposal and language that would be associated with them being the wife, being brought into a family. In the ancient Near Eastern world, particularly the Jewish setting, a household consisted of a patriarch a chief father, typically a grandfather or perhaps if he lived a long time, a great-grandfather, and all of his sons, all of their wives, and all of their children, and if you get on into more than two generations, their sons and their wives being brought in as well. And so what would happen is the patriarch would have a house and for his sons to marry wives, he would build upon that house another structure. They were building almost like a commune. And so they would build extra bedrooms, extra living quarters. And the sons would marry a wife and that wife would come into the home and would be part of that household. And so when Jesus tells them that He's going, He tells them He's going to His Father's house and He says, in my Father's house are many mansions, which seems to be kind of an optical illusion. Wait a minute. A house with mansions in it? What are we talking about here? The language kind of gets lost on us. His point is that He is returning to the patriarch. And He's preparing a place. 
preparing a place for us. He's adding on in heaven. He's adding a new floor, a new level. Doing a home renovation. And extending back out into the backyard. And He's preparing a place for us so that we can come and be a part of that family. To live within that household. We live in a time in Western civilization when we find around us the erosion of the family. Debates in the public square now center around what is a family? What does it mean to be a mom? What does it mean to be a dad? Is the family subservient to society or vice versa? Does the society serve the family? How does this relationship work in a culture as progressive as ours? How does this relationship between the family and whatever the family is and its culture around it, how does that relationship work? What shapes the other? And not only that, but what does it even mean to be a family? And many of us throw up our hands in despair and we say, all hope is lost. Come Lord quickly. The Scriptures, however, teach us about the family. And they teach us about the family from this perspective. The fact that God the Father is the archetype of fatherhood. And I use that word. Many of you know what it means. Arch means to rule or reign. And a type is, is like a picture of something. What, the reason why I say that the Father is the archetype of fatherhood is because it is He who defines for us what it means to be a father. We don't define that for ourselves. We don't creatively try to come up with what a good dad ought to be. We look to our Father who has created us to find what fathers ought to be. So He is the one who sets the example. In fact, the fatherhood of God exists before all things. Think of this. Before God was Lord, He was Father. Now let me repeat that. Before God was Lord, He was Father. To be Lord over something means that there has to be something beneath you. Something subservient to you. And so before the worlds were created, before there was such a thing as matter, before there was anything, there was God the Father, and there was one who looked to God the Father and said, Abba. So I might get in trouble with some theological circles. But I think we could safely say that God became Lord. But He is Father. 
I'm going to have to tweak that out later. I think that's pretty good. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever heard anybody say that. I hope I'm not stepping off into heresy here. Before all the worlds were created, before there was anything physically existing, before matter was created, before God said, let there be light, there was a Father in eternity who looked to His Son in love. There are some biblical pictures of God as Father that Yahweh in the Old Testament and that Jesus in the New Testament are, were using to shape Israel's understanding and the church's understanding of what God as Father means. And therefore, what we as people living with fathers, as fathers, among fathers, ought to understand about what it means to be a father. And as you can tell from the title of the sermon, I want you to understand that all of this is intended to be something of blessing. In the biblical picture of a family, the family exists to be a blessing. To be a blessing to those who are a member of the family, but also to be a blessing to society as a whole or to those influenced by the family. And the father within a family is intended to be the fountain of that blessing. Dads are expected biblically to be a good thing for their family. They are not expected to be the butt of the joke. They are not expected to be the babysitter. Because we all know that you know moms are the ones that are the parent, and when dad's keeping the kids, he's babysitting. They were not expected to be the the man on the couch with the clicker who's lazy. They weren't expected to be all those caricatures that our society has come up with for what it means to be a dad. Rather, they were to be the fountain of blessing in the family. And the reason they were to be the fountain of blessing in the family is because the first biblical picture we have for fathers in a family is that they were intended to be the head. We talked about how there was a house filled with mansions and there was a patriarch of that house. That's uh, the, the, where our Latin term, patri, if you've ever sung in a church setting, the Gloria Patri, that's a Latin phrase, glory to the Father. Glory be to the Father is the first line of the Gloria Patri. And the patriarch was the head of the family. He was, in other terms, the fountain of the family. He was where the family came from. Now this was a stern idea in the ancient world. This was not a lovey-dovey type head of a family. This was the one who created order within the family. We may not like this, but 
This was the one that called the shots in the family. He was the standard bearer of the family. He was the one who set par within the family. He was the one who ordered the family's prayer life and worship life and the study of God's Word. While he was not necessarily sentimental or soft, he was the one that set order within the house. He was kind of a a first principle within the family. The early church fathers spoke of God the Father as the fountainhead of deity. There is no son apart from the Father. Jesus even said it throughout John's Gospel. He kept saying, look, I've come not to do my work, but to do my Father's work. I've come not on my own accord, but I've come because He sent me. I've come not to, not to say my own words or to come up with something brilliant for you. I'm simply speaking to you what I'm hearing Him whisper into my ear. And He says even that in this context, as He's sharing with His disciples on the night of His betrayal here on Monday, Thursday, throughout uh, chapters 14 through 16, He begins telling them, look, I'm going away because remember, I've got to go prepare a place for you. But He says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you fatherless. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I am, I'm slipping away to prepare a place for you and you won't be alone. I'm sending another comforter. Amen. He says, I will pray to the Father and He and I will send to you the Holy Spirit. And He says, the Spirit comes not to, not to do His own thing or His own work because just as the Son does no work on His own apart from the Father through the Spirit, so also the Spirit doesn't do His own work apart from the ordering of the Father and the mediation of the Son. He says, the Spirit will bring to you My Word. He will lead and guide you into all truth. He will speak to you those things that I have for you that you're not ready for yet. But all throughout this, this discussion, Jesus is, is teaching His disciples that it is the Father who has, who has ordered these things. Not in a demanding type way, but set them in order. He is the fountainhead of all grace, of all righteousness, all justice, and all mercy. And Jesus would have us believe that He has come from the Father... John in his gospel, he begins with a prologue and he talks about how Christ has come and He has manifested to us God in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus cannot even speak of Himself in John's Gospel apart from His relationship to the Father. Throughout the Scriptures, you have the term Father being used 1,510 times. That's 1,510 times the term Father is used in the Old and New Testaments. 240 of those times, it's used in the Gospels. And of those, 118 times you have the term Father used in the Gospel of John alone. 
that sounds almost like the Father is the main character in the Gospel. God as Father is the head of the family. That's why in the Eastern Church, uh, the kids have it on the the back of their bulletin. Uh, In the Eastern Church, if you have an image of the Trinity or a shield of the Trinity, you always have a top of the triangle and then two bottoms because it is the Father that is the the fountainhead of deity. He is the head. In the West, we typically would have Father, Son, and then you've got a spirit down here. This is the best way I can show you is just by pointing and directing my hands up here. But He is as Father, as head of the household. He is the one in authority. He is the one who is ordering the life of his family. But this also means that he is the one who is responsible for the family. And so a second biblical picture for us throughout the Old and New Testaments is that it is the Father who is responsible for redeeming those in need of redemption in his family. There's a peculiar statement made in the New Testament epistles that it is the father, it is God who is the father of all families, the one who gives the, the one who uh, uh, the one by whom all of the families of earth are named. And it is the father's responsibility to redeem those in need of redemption those who have found themselves broken, those who have found themselves in trouble. Very literally, in the ancient Near Eastern world, if there was a patriarch in the family, and there was someone within that household who fell into danger, whether it was danger with another tribe, or whether it was financial danger, whether it was the death of a husband and suddenly you have... You have a woman who is married into the family. It was the father, the patriarch's responsibility to be a kinsman redeemer. It was his responsibility to care for those entrusted to his household. Now this softens our image of father because he's not some authoritarian head of a family. Instead, he is the one who not who's not just given unfettered authority, he's the one whose responsibility it is to care for the family. To show love and compassion. To show brokenness and humility. He exists not for his own authority, he exists for the sake of those within the family, those entrusted to his care. John John tells us again back in his prologue that Christ has come to redeem the Word who was made flesh. He came to His own and His own didn't receive Him. In other words, He showed up to His own family and they didn't didn't take Him in. 
But as many as have received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born not of, not, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but those who have been born of God. He has come to redeem, to bring back into the family those who have been estranged. If you look throughout the Old Testament, we are so, so in our culture fixated upon this idea that God is just angry and vengeful and spitting mad in the Old Testament. We forget the fact that it seems like God is obsessed in the Old Testament with the widows and with the orphans. That's not some mean old man in the sky ready to strike everyone dead. Now, He may get mean and angry up in the sky and be ready to strike us dead if we abuse the widows and we neglect the orphans. But God's concern and interest is for those in need. Now, what we find in the Gospel is that we're all in need. We're all broken. Regardless of how well we've got life put together, regardless of how well we think we've got it all handled and taken care of, we're all broken and we're all in need and we're all in need of a Redeemer. We're all in need of our Father, the one who's, who said it's my job to care for you to come and to rescue us. And that's what He's done in Christ. He's come to bring us back into the family. To bring us back into the fold. So Jesus says, look, you believe in God, believe also in Me. God has not left you alone. He has come to redeem. He takes responsibility upon Himself to care for those who find themselves needy and broken. And there's a third image in the Scriptures of what it means to be a father. To be a father is not just to be the head of a household or the redeemer of those who are broken. He's also the mentor of his children. This kind of keeps the, that seeming hardness and that seeming softness of these first two images in check because a mentor is someone who obviously is hands-on and is providing care for the one being mentored, but he's also the one that holds a standard of accountability. It is the mentor's job to, to teach you something and therefore do good for you, but also to make sure that you're doing it right. This keeps that softness and sternness honest, so to speak. John in his prologue said that that the light who gives light to every man was coming into the world and that Christ was that light. That He was in the world's darkness but He came as a light. He came to shine forth in the darkness the way forward. And on this night that He was betrayed, in John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You want to come to the Father? You'd better come by Me because I'm the one who He has sent to redeem. 
And so I'm the one who's come to show you the way to mentor you, to direct your path, to teach you a trade, to display and groom within you good character, to build within you the family ethic. See, all these things were the responsibility of the father. It was his job to teach the boys how to, how to earn a living and provide for a family. How to be a good person, to be honorable and honest. How to live according to the standard of the family. I, I believe it was last week when I used Aiden as an example. Um, and it was purely hypothetical. He never hits his, his brothers. But um, about how I, I, we often use the verbiage of that's not how we act in this family. We don't speak like that in our family. We don't re- disrespect our mom in this family. What are you talking about? I just disrespected her. That's what you're getting on to me for, Dad. You know, it was, the, it was the, the father's responsibility to provide a context of moral ethic within a family. He was a provider, but not just in a tangible and financial sense. He was the provider of stability and faithfulness. He was the provider of character and morals within a family. It is because the Father is our mentor, our teacher, our guider, our provider, that the psalmist cries out that He is my rock. He is my sure foundation. He is the one upon which I can rest my weight. He is utterly faithful. He is the epitome of the the marine code, Semper Fidelis. He is always faithful, even to His own hurt. Even when it's Him who has to go and redeem, and therefore it's Him that bears the, the cost. He is always and utterly faithful. He has dependability that can be counted on. Jesus is not just teaching His disciples, look, if you pray a prayer in My name, you can get to heaven. He's telling them that He is the way of living. That He is the life itself. That He is not just the author of truth, He is the personification of truth. He can be relied upon and depended upon. You can live your life according to Him. You can follow after Him and not be led astray. He is utterly faithful. And His faithfulness is not contingent upon our faithfulness. He is faithful when we're faithless. He is faithful when we are unfaithful. He is always faithful. And He will be faithful to lead us, to guide us, to teach us, to display for us how we ought to live. Now all this, we learn of the fatherhood of God. And it is this that then bears for us an image of what those of us who who are dads ought to be, but also how we ought to as children relate to our families, our fathers. And how we ought to relate to God as our Father 
how we ought to bear in mind those who have had a, a broken and destroyed and shameful display of what a father is and how we then ought to step in the gap and fill up what is lacking in the brokenness of others. Because we are called as the family of God and as families within that family, we are called to be the fountain of blessing to the world. You know, one of the beautiful assumptions or, or consequences, theological consequences, of, uh, of Wesley's theology. You know, we're Methodist church. Or the founder of Methodism was Wesley. One of, the, one, of the, one of the hallmarks of Wesleyan theology was the fact that God can transform God is able and God is willing and He wants to put back together those things that are broken. God is the, the shopkeeper who's finding broken appliances and wants to fix them and finding broken artifacts and pieces of, and He's wanting to put them back together. God is able to and He wants to. And if He can put back our lives, put those back together, if He can put back together the human heart, if He can put back together broken marriages and destroyed families, if He can put back together those things, then He can put the world back together because that's what the good news is all about, that God has not just abandoned this world, He's redeemed it, and He's left the church here to do the work of the Gospel, and He's coming back to receive us. And so, one of the... One of the um, theological consequences of that is there is hope in the world. As terrible as things sound on Fox News and CNN and the New York Times and in the AJC and the Marietta Daily Journal, as terrible as those things sound and as terrible as they really are, we can't deny that, there is hope. As long as there is breath, there is hope. There's always hope. The church is the hope of the world. America is not the hope of the world. The church is the hope of the world. We can love His politics all day long. We can love His acting all day long if we want to go go there. But Ronald Reagan was wrong when he, when he talked about America as the city on a hill. The church is the city on the hill. Yes. And even, even if the land we love and the country where we enjoy our free, great, the greatest freedoms the world has ever known, even if it falls to pieces, there is hope if there's a church. And what God, as Father, loves to do, what He delights to do, is to make family a source of blessing to the world. The 
God chose a family to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. He went to a shriveled up old man, Abram, and he said, it's impossible by the world's standards. It is impossible. But you are going to have a son. And you will become the father of many nations. And you will be a blessing to all people. It was such a ludicrous idea that Sarah laughed. Sarai, as she was called. You forget, before there was Abraham and Sarah, their names were Abram and Sarai. She laughed. And she was asked, why are you laughing? And her response was, I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. Okay. So they, they named that child Isaac. He laughs. She thought it was a joke. A ludicrous and impossible fairy tale. But the joke was on her. You're going to be the grandmommy and great-grandmommy of millions of people. So he established a family and through that family he established a nation. Notice he didn't establish a family after he established a nation. It was the nation that was built upon the family. That ought to check some of our assumptions about society. He established a family. He established a nation. And through that family and that nation, He sent a Redeemer. A kinsman Redeemer. Someone to bring us back, to show us the way to get back to our Father. And He says... I'm building on, folks. I'm building on for you. We're adding another level on top of the house, kids. And that's a blessing to us, but shame on us if we think that's the only reason He's adding another level. We ought to think, wait a minute, he's adding a level for me. He's adding a level for my wife and my kids. Why can't he be adding another level for my coworker who seems like a devil, who seems like his life is falling apart? He's the God who does the impossible. He is the God who did the ludicrous thing of shouting into the darkness and saying, light, and boom, there's light. come to one of those places where I think I don't know what else to say. Um, As fathers, this is a call to us to be better fathers. 
to not check out and assume mom's going to do it all. To not check out and think, you know, well, mom's the compassionate one. I'm the one that's going to build some discipline in these kids. But to take our cue from our Father in heaven. And as members of the family of God, we are all children and joint heirs. We have all been brought into the household. And it is our job to, as Jesus did, be about our Father's business. To be taking part in what it takes to run the household. And to be taking part in what it takes to add on to the household to bring others in. Let's pray.